TGIM Timari. This is episode 299. And now that, you know, I'm reaping the benefits of what it truly means to live, like you said, a fulfilled life. It's, it's crazy. It really is. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Odette Kressler. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's podcast, we've got Desi. She took her last drink on July 21st, 2018. She is from Michigan and she is 30 years old. I met Desi when we were both patients at an eating disorder treatment center here in California. Desi and I were in the same cohort and she is one of my sisters in recovery. So I am super excited to air her story and to have you all learn from her journey. And before we get started, I have a very exciting RE update. You all have been asking about this specific topic and our team has been working hard on launching RE merchandise for a couple of months now. So I'm here to announce that the merch tab on the RE website is officially live. Head on over to www.recoveryelevator.com forward slash merch and grab an RE hat or an RE t-shirt. There are a couple of other items on there, so go check it out. I can't wait to see photos of listeners wearing merchandise. I know there are many people listening in from many different countries, and I'm excited to see our RE hats and our RE shirts all over the world. To us, Recovery Elevator Gear represents you stepping into the most authentic version of yourself. It's pretty badass. All right, let's work on finding your better you. I'm going to get real with you all. I'm working on this intro on a Wednesday afternoon. It's 3.45 p.m. and I'm laying in bed with my dog, Charlie. Contrary to many of your guys' belief, I do not have it all together. I've talked about my ability to learn from obstacles, my stubborn optimism, and my firm belief that good things are on the way. However, hard days happen for everyone. An instructor said on my Peloton class the other day that even our heroes struggle. Don't believe everything you see on the good old Instagram. Lately, I've been lacking in motivation to get tasks done. It takes me a minute to start and... I just want to come into my bed and take naps in the middle of the day more often than not. I call these my dip days. Dip days have been happening frequently this 2020. These days have taught me so much about myself. They've taught me that it's okay to not thrive every single day. They've taught me to relish on the small things like the smell of my morning coffee. They've taught me to truly surrender and understand that feelings do indeed pass without having to manipulate or coerce them. Dip days have taught me to be honest and assert my needs. They've taught me that I am not alone. According to Gabor Mate's book, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, our human brains need three things to optimally function. Nutrition, physical security, and consistent emotional nurturing. Now, I don't know if it's too much of a stretch to conclude this, but if these three factors make up a triangle... One of these legs has probably gotten a good wobble during 2020. Anyone else? Does this resonate or is it just me? This year is here to remind us that we are stronger than we think. And it's also reminded us what grief feels like. 
It's got many of us operating in this fight or flight mode and also operating in this newfound level of gratitude. It separated us and also brought us close together. I think coexist is my word for the year. And if you've been sober this year or if you are attempting to get sober right this moment, I hope you are extremely proud of yourself for showing up, for linking arms with us, for stepping into the arena of recovery when it feels so much easier to just not even attempt that right now. Please stay the course. We need you. On dip days, I have to love myself harder, but I also have learned the importance of doing the next right thing for myself. I've been away from a drink for a bit now, and although my cravings aren't as frequent as they once were, I still need to be mindful of what is going on in my brain on days where I find myself wanting relief from overwhelming days that feel completely out of my control. So I wanted to take this opportunity to share a few of the tools that are working for me lately. Number one, eat, 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 eat. I read this quote that said, you can't live a full life on an empty stomach. I know for many of us, stress and anxiety mess up with our hunger, but eating is important right now. Number two, drink water, lots of it. Number three, meditate, breathe. I use Insight Timer. I love it. And shout out to Sarah Blondin. I think I'm pronouncing her name right, but I love every one of her meditations on Insight Timer. Number four, laugh. Baby Yoda memes really help me with this, by the way. I love baby Yoda memes. Number five, remind yourself daily that you are not your productivity levels. Slow days with more breaks should be normalized. It's just my opinion. And number six, take your medications, if you're on any medication. These seem simple, but they help. And I felt compelled to share them in case anybody else can benefit from any of these tools right now, especially the baby Yoda memes. I think everybody can benefit from a good baby Yoda meme. Just saying. All right. Eso es todo, amigos. I really, really hope you enjoy this episode. And before we hear from Desi, let's hear from my favorite resource on this journey, Cafe RE. When departing from alcohol, here are the two main keys to success. You need a supportive, loving community, and you have to create accountability with others who have the same goal in mind. Whether you want to ditch the booze for a month, a year, or are simply sober curious, you'll get both of these in Cafe RE. These groups are unsearchable on Facebook. Who is in the group and what is said can only be seen by members. You get 24-7 access to a group full of others whose priority it is to live an alcohol-free life. These groups are capped at under 400 members to ensure quality connection. In Cafe RE, you'll find that quitting drinking can be fun. For $19 a month, you get access to the community, get paired with an accountability partner, attend educational online webinars, online discussions, attend in-person meetups, participate in book club, movie club, and more. You'll also get discounts to retreats and sober travel trips. 15% of monthly fees goes towards our service project where we work with a nonprofit helping those who have been affected by addiction. And another portion goes to the in-person meetups. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. Again, use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. I hope to see you there. Hey, Desi. How are you? It's so good to have you. Hi, I'm good. How are you? So excited to be here. You have no idea. I've been looking forward to this for quite some time. Oh, me too. Listeners, Desi and I were in treatment together over five years ago. So it's been a hot minute and she is my 
now sober sister, but has been my recovery sister for a long time. So I am equally as excited as you are, Desi. Thank you so much for saying yes to coming onto the podcast. Absolutely. And let's get right into it. When was the last time you had a drink, Desi? My sober day is July 22nd, 2018. So I just celebrated two years a couple weeks ago. How'd you celebrate? You know, I spent time with, with my family. My family has been like my biggest support system, hands down, um, over the course of my struggles throughout my life. And, you know, I think the more that I, the longer I've been in recovery, the more I really value the relationships I have. And we didn't do too much, but just being together was, was perfectly, you know, it was the perfect day for me. (laughs) I was so excited to see that. I know I follow you on social media and I know how close you guys are. So I'm really thankful you have them. And obviously they're extremely thankful to have you. So I'm happy you got some time with them. And can you give listeners a little background? Can you let us know where you're from? What are your hobbies? What do you do for a living? And what do you like to do for fun? Yeah, for sure. So I am actually from Michigan. I live in a little suburb called Macomb, about a half hour outside of Detroit. I have the most loving family in the entire world, mom, dad, two brothers, and the love of my life, which is my great Dane, Valentine. Um, She is going to be six on Halloween, um, and she's just the sweetest thing in the world. Currently, I am finishing up my master's degree at the University of Michigan. I'm getting my master's in social work, so that is like truly a full circle kind of situation for me with everything that I've been through. And then to be able to complete something as extraordinary as this. And then in my spare time, which is not very much, I'm a lacrosse coach. I coach high school lacrosse. And that's honestly my greatest passion in life. I've been coaching for 13 years. I played um, in high school. I also played in college. And I think what really draws me to it is not even just that I get to teach these kids the sport that I love, but that I get to, you know, mentor these kids in a way, because as I, as I mentioned earlier, like relationships have truly become the foundation, I think of which I live my life and the relationships that I have with these kids, not only when they play for me, but even after they graduate have just given so much meaning to my life in a way that I never could have imagined. When I look at how far you've come, and we'll get into sharing your story here in a little bit, but when I when I see you and I look at your journey and then I hear you talk about all these things that fuel you and that give you purpose, I just think of the word fulfillment. Like I know that you've had challenge after challenge. I know that struggles will never end and that we never truly arrive, but I feel like you have certainly arrived to a life that Like, not only do you value it so much, but it's really fulfilling your soul. And it makes me super happy to just hear that. And it's so hopeful for listeners and other people out there who are struggling to see that our life can truly, truly change when we stick on this path of recovery. I mean, it's so crazy because, I mean, you're right. You, of of anyone, we saw each other at some pretty rough times. And, you know, I think you really took hold of recovery in life before I did, but thankfully I had you to look to as an example of what recovery looks like in life. I mean, you know, I just, I, you know, of course we follow each other on social media and just looking at you with your family and just the things that you, you've done over the last just few years, even alone have 
you know, been a huge inspiration to me. And, you know, especially in a time where, like you said, I, I did not have hope for a better life for a long time. I mean, you know, when, when you're dealing with demons, when you're dealing with diseases, issues, it's, it's hard to see outside of it. Um, and, you know, because I struggled for so long, I, I did, I kind of was going through the motions of things that could potentially lead me to a better life, but it took a long time for me to actually buy into the fact that it was possible. And now that, you know, I'm reaping the benefits of what it truly means to live, like you said, a fulfilled life. It's it's crazy. It really is. Oh, I'm so proud of you. <laughs> Walk us through your story, Desi. Give listeners some background on your history. Um, I know this podcast specifically talks about alcohol, but I know that like myself, you also struggled um, with an eating disorder. So just walk us through your journey and what got you to finally giving up alcohol. Sure. Well, buckle up, everyone. So, I mean, my my uh, journey started um, at a very young age, at the age of seven. It took a lot of time to really understand when and why uh, my issues started. They started um, with an eating disorder at the age of seven after being sexually abused by a neighbor, someone in my life. And although I didn't really recognize that at the time, I actually didn't even, I, I kind of repressed it so far. I didn't even think about it again until I was like 22 years old. But looking back in the process of, you know, therapy and treatment, I saw that my eating disorder really started at a young age. And all throughout grade school, middle school, um, I was I was bullied relentlessly. Just, you know, things that I, I'm a strong personality. I'm a strong person in general I was a very strong child and I truly had no awareness towards like the things that were happening to me and that they were causing the reaction that they were in me it wasn't until high school um, I was 14 years old um, and I lost um, a cousin of mine who was very very close to me at the young age of 25 that my life took a turn in a way that I could never have imagined. Um, I'm someone who does not handle death well. I mean, I've definitely come a long way in that. But at the time, it, this was my first outside of a grandparent, which, of course, is important. Um, this was my first experience with death. Um, and it was it was very sudden. It was shocking. It was horrific. It was terrible. And the way that my family kind of, I don't know, functioned at that point is that we didn't really talk about it. Of course, you know, they're loving that, you know, we hug each other, we whatever support each other in that way, but it was never really to a level that I now understand is what I needed at that time. I didn't have anyone to talk to about it. I felt that no one understood. And that's when my eating disorder really took off in a way that, you know, I guess started the real journey of hell, quite frankly, um, that I was on for the next, you know, more than a decade. It was around that time too um, that I started drinking and, you know, right away, and I know that it might even sound cliche at this point, but truly the my first drink was not normal. The the way I drank the first the first time I drank was not like peers my age, was not like I guess what I now term as normal people. And it was just something that kind of like switched a or flipped a switch in my head and I was like, Okay, I want more of this. This is this makes me feel a way um that I haven't felt in, you know, since my cousin's passing or even in a long time. And it was what I now attribute to being able to kind of like escape or just disconnect from reality. And, you know, that, you know, continued, absolutely continued all throughout high school, 
I went through a couple more difficult things. I had two knee surgeries that sidelined me from my senior year of lacrosse, which would have been a really, really big deal for me going into college, um, which even took it even further. And then getting into college was another kind of turning point for me in, in a negative way. Um, I got hooked up with a, a group of people that were not making wise decisions. And I, you know, made not wise decisions right along with them. And, you know, for a period of, of time, I was, you know, I, I look back and I don't even know how I made it out of that. I mean, just destructive. Every, every decision I made was destructive, every single one, um, whether it was drinking, whether it was my eating disorder, whether it was just, I don't know. I, I it's, it's hard to even explain, but, you know, throughout that process, I was extremely depressed, high anxiety, you know, thoughts of just not wanting to be alive. It would be better if I wasn't here. I mean, life is, was so hard for me at that point that I just, I didn't want to be around because I didn't want to keep dealing with life. And although I know now I wasn't really dealing with anything, mm-hmm. um, which I, in turn what made it worse, but you know, it's, it's so real and it's so suffocating when you're in that moment. And, you know, as I said, it, it, it pushed through into, into college where I met a girl, a woman who I uh, played lacrosse with, who changed my life. And she is now my sister, not blood related, but she, um, the relationship I had with her was like home. It was like family. And she has two other sisters that are blood related to her that are my sisters as well. They, they saved my life hands down. It was meeting them that really opened my eyes to I don't, the good part of life. I mean, I think until that point, I surrounded myself with people that made destructive decisions like me because that's all I really knew. And I don't know if it's like I, I sought it out or it was like it had a gravitational pull to me or what it was. But when I met my sister, Vera, it was like everything changed. And I think up until that point, you know, I had really great friends in high school. I was someone who got along with everyone. I mean, to this day, I'm pretty much that person. But, you know, with with Vera, my sister, it was like I finally had a healthy relationship in my life. Someone that was, you know, good to their core, had a heart of absolute gold. And I started surrounding myself with her and her sisters, who are now my sisters, you know, all the time. Um, it was like their family adopted me. My family adopted them. I attend their cousins' weddings and baptisms. They attend my cousins, you know, the same. And, you know, we, we've been family ever since. But where they really come into play in my life, especially, is when I was 22. So this was in 2012. Things had gotten so bad for me in my eating disorder. It was, it was pretty much near death at that point. I, could, I couldn't get out of bed. Uh, my body was just shutting down on me. It was quitting, you know, and this was all while I was playing college lacrosse as well. And I don't like to pat myself on the back here, but throughout lacrosse in college, I was voted as the best player in the country. Like I was, I was number one. Um, I was an All-American athlete. I was player of the year. And I was doing all of this while self-destructing. I mean, that's the easiest way to put it. Not eating, drinking. I mean, it was, it was, it, it, when I look back, it's, it's truly unbelievable to me how how any of that even happened how I was able to even do that I talk about this on another episode that I did a couple of weeks ago of how that just proves how strong and powerful our minds can be and how we can use them 
to choose whichever path we want to. But the fact that it was basically mind over matter at that point for you, because your body probably wasn't equipped to deal with what you were putting it through, yet your mind and your resolve was so strong that that, that, I think Mm -hmm. that's one of the biggest things of people like you and me. It's like, we are so stubborn and we will not let go when something gets drilled into our minds. It's like, I am going to accomplish this no matter what it costs me. And of course, it was a progression to the point where you said in 2012, things were really bad. But like you said, you don't even know how you made it. Were you full functioning during college too, with, with like school and everything like from the outside, it looked like you had it all together. Everything truly it's incredible. Like, and as you said, I am someone and I've been told by many other people that I can truly accomplish anything that I set my mind to regardless of the circumstance. And that was, I think that resiliency and that determination to me is a, has been a blessing and a curse at the same time. What happened afterwards? So this is where I think, you know, things really changed. I also forgot to mention that starting in 2009, I started having chest pain that between 2009 and 2015, I was in and out of hospital ERs um, with chest pain from starting as a 19 year old until the time I was 24. As an athlete, I was always dismissed saying that it was just anxiety, even though I had struggled with anxiety for many, many years. And I knew exactly what anxiety felt like. And I knew it wasn't anxiety. They did every time they did chest x-rays and EKGs, which always came back like the epitome of health. So that started in 2009, which will play into my journey later down the road. So in 2012, my sister, um, not Vera, Lauren, another one of my sisters who wouldn't, couldn't, wouldn't be here without, said she posed on the phone as me with my insurance company um, and also with the treatment center that I went to to get me in. She confronted me, said, here's your plane ticket. Like, this is when you're leaving. Goodbye. Like, that's it. Because she was like, I'm not watching you do this anymore. You are you are going to die. And as pissed as I was at that time, you know, there was a part of me that knew that that was absolutely what I needed if I if I was going to have a chance to live. Um, so that started my treatment journey. And I was in treatment November of 2012 till March of 2013. And I left to go come back home to Michigan to play my senior year of college lacrosse. (laughs) And then I I told them when I left the treatment center, I'm like, all right, I'll see you in June because I knew that right after my season, I was going to be right back there. And that's sure enough. That's what happened. That's when I met you. (laughs) And then that brought me to you. So June of 2013, that's where our paths crossed, which honestly so blessed for that. And just, you know, of course, all the relationships that we've made um, in our journey together there. Um, and then I was in treatment there for another, I was there for 13 months, 13 straight months. And I think my, my thing, and, and at that point, that was the first time I tried to get sober was within my second trip to Hotel California. Um, and I was sober for about 10 months. I was not really working any type of program it was more what i would consider to be like a dry drunk there was no basis behind my program of recovery i was just staying sober because that was the expectation of of the treatment center i was in quite frankly because you know i left there in july of 2014 i came back home and in michigan between july and november of 2014 i was sober at home 
still doing the same thing, which was a whole lot of nothing as far as recovery goes for drinking. And then one day in November, I was like, you know what? I think I'm just going to drink. Like, it's it's whatever. And I think that that thought was just like, you know, you hear a lot of people talk about how after a period of time, they start questioning, like, whether they even have a drinking problem or whether it was really that bad or, you know, just X, Y, and Z. And I think at that point, I had been having those thoughts um, for a while that I, I really wasn't aware of, of how dangerous those thoughts were. And I was like, you know what, it's fine. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna drink. It's not a big deal. And then I, I went back out, I drank and was drinking until July 22nd of 2018. And in that time, I mean, you touched on the progression earlier. That was exactly what it was. I mean, even though I start, I mean, from the very beginning of when I started drinking, I could never just have one. It was never just one, but everything that came with drinking was negative and destructive until the time I put, I put it down two years ago. But I think, you know, one of the, the biggest parts of my story would have to be in 2015, after I had been dealing with this chest pain for, I don't know, six years now, um, I got to a point where I could not breathe. I could not walk. I could not stand up. I could not move. I couldn't talk. Nothing. Couldn't eat because I was in so much pain in my chest um, that I finally went to an ER that ran a different test. They ran a CAT scan and that CAT scan showed that I had three liters of fluid in my chest. So I had a liter around my heart, a liter around each of my lungs. So if you imagine like a liter of pop, like that was that was the amount oh of fluid three of those that I had in my chest. And I just remember the doctor coming into my room and my parents were there and the doctor said, your daughter is so sick. And it was like that I've never felt relief like I had felt in that moment because finally after six years of being in pain, someone had believed me. And it was like, thank God, like hopefully this is going to be over. So they talked about you know, their plans for what they were going to do to get rid of the fluid. They were going to, you know, put kind of a needle in between my ribs to drain the fluid from around my heart because that was the biggest um, issue. And then, you know, my lungs would hopefully take care of themselves. I don't know exactly. But regardless, when they were performing this procedure, and I'm, I'm making this story much more glorified than it was, let me tell you, when they did that procedure, they accidentally poked a hole all the way through my heart and ended up having to crack me open and perform open heart surgery because I was bleeding to death. I was, I was literally dying, um, which the situation was horrific for me. It was even more horrific for my family, you know, with the doctors running in and out. It was like, it was like a TV episode where doctors are running in and out. Like your daughter, you need to sign this. She's dying like emergency type. It was, it was from what I hear was unbelievable. Like the situation itself. And it was extremely, um, extremely. So, um, I had no idea that this was possible. And when I woke up from anesthesia, I truly thought that I was dead because I was paralyzed, like from the anesthesia still, like my brain turned on, but my body was still like frozen. And I, I thought I was dead until I heard my dad's voice. And then it was like, it was the biggest shock of my life waking up in that type of state because I never even knew that that was an option. I didn't even know really what open heart surgery entailed at that point. And they never even talked to me about that potentially being an issue. And and then my life changed truly from, from that point on. I had to 
relearn how to like walk and move and eat and breathe and talk. And it was a very long recovery physically. And I think mentally it's still something that, you know, I process every once in a while and, and, and think about because of, like you said, how traumatizing it was, but it was after, it was about a month after, you know, a couple of months after my surgery, that surgery was June 29th, 2015. So at the end of June, I actually celebrated, I say five years of life. And uh, after that, I went back to treatment again, the same place for, for the last time. After another very traumatic loss in my life, my grandfather, my papa, who I was very close to, passed away in August of 2015. Um, I checked myself back in for, again, the final time, early September of 2015. And I stayed until the very, very end of December. Um, and it was really through that time that my eating disorder recovery was in a completely different place as far as like, I understood what I had to do. I was done, excuse my language, fucking around because that's what I had been doing for, I mean, the whole time I was in treatment from 2012 till that time, I, I wasn't really taking it seriously. I was going through the motions. Again, I think the pattern of quote unquote recovery I had was there was no, there was no point. There was no basis. There was no true agenda as far as my recovery went. It was just like I was doing what I was told or like what was expected of me in recovery. And then I started taking it seriously my last time around. I was still drinking. I have these incredible individuals that you also know that we've worked with. I mean, I'm just going to say Nancy and Sharon and Leah and you know, especially Nancy and Sharon were like, you are never going to recover or be in recovery. You're never going to get better until you address both. And both for me would be my drinking and my eating disorder. Mm -hmm. And I was like, every time I'd roll my eyes at them, I'd tell them they were full of shit, even though they, they clearly knew exactly what they were talking about. And I did not, I did not believe them in any way. So this went on for another three years where my eating disorder was, was up and down. I mean, like, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a roller coaster on a day-to-day life, but it was better, much better than it had ever been before, but still not to the point where I had hoped it would be or where truly after all the treatment I had it, it really likely should have been. And, you know, I was drinking every single day. And between 2015 and 2018, um, especially, especially the last six months of my drinking in 2018, it was like I was possessed by alcoholism. I mean, I was drinking ridiculous amount every single day. I mean, to the point where I was taking, you know, bottles of liquor and refilling them up with water so that people didn't know that I was drinking the entire bottle of liquor. I mean, it was, it was like I had this monotonous robotic routine every day of my life where, you know, I, I worked, I did what I had to do. If I had to coach, I coached, I came home, I sat on the couch from like 10 PM to like six in the morning by myself drinking. Like that was what I did every single night. And then I'd pass out, I'd wake up, I'd do the same thing again. And, you know, throughout, especially the last six months, but more so the last two years, like my relationship suffered huge. The ones that I had worked so hard to rebuild in recovery from my eating disorder, because I was drinking, I mean, all the time. And it was, it was a disaster, um, especially at, at the end. I actually got into a situation in June of 2018 that I had never thought that I would get into um, with my drinking. It was a direct result of my drinking and that scared the living hell out of me. And although realistically should have been my bottom in every way, it, it was not, you know, I've had, I'm sure like you, you know, I've had, I've had probably hundreds of bottoms that 
to any normal person would have been like, wow, that's pretty bad. Like, that's a pretty, pretty deep hole you dug there. But nope, I just crawl myself right back out and then dig another one. Mm-hmm. And for me, it was an emotional bottom that I reached at about four in the morning on July 21st. Or it was technically, yeah, July 21st. I was drinking until four in the morning and it was an emotional bottom that I experienced that was unlike anything else. And that's what did it for me. At that point, I had been going to different meetings and, and other types of recovery oriented, you know, activities, groups of people. And, you know, it had been drilling in my head for, you know, a period of time, like, this is what you do. This is what you do. You call people before you drink, like you can put down the drink whenever you, you know, you want, you don't have to have a big event. It doesn't have to be like a life changing thing. Um, and you have people that are willing to support you X, Y, and Z. And, you know, that night that did it for me. I, I could finally see myself like from an outside perspective and I hated what I saw. Like my life was so miserable. It was so destructive. There was nothing positive about the way that I thought as far as whether it be the outside world and especially myself. And I was just done. I was like, you know what? I'm not going to, I'm not going to live another day doing this. I'm not going to go through another night of this. And, you know, it was luckily for me, that was when I put the drink down for hopefully the last time, as long as I continue to work my butt off every single day for a better life. And it wasn't easy. It was not easy. You know, that first, the first, I would even say, say 90 days or four months after I stopped drinking, it was, it was tough. I mean, the withdrawal symptoms and just the cravings, they didn't subside for a couple of months, but once they did, it was like, I cannot believe I didn't do this sooner. And, you know, you know, too, it takes what it takes. And for me, it took a lot of shit and a lot of heartache and a lot of situations that could have been prevented had I, you know, made better choices sooner. But, you know, I'm, I'm so grateful for every single thing I went through, as difficult as they were, because without them, I would not be where I am right now. There's no way. And I think, like, above all else, just the level of awareness that I have after getting sober is what made all of it worth it. Yes. Did you ever think when you came out of treatment for the last time for your eating disorder and then you found yourself having these conversations or like this new built awareness around the drinking and the progression, were you, I'm just sharing this because it happened to me, were you like, no, my big thing is the eating disorder thing. Like I can't, I get to keep this. Like I better get to keep something because I'm already fucked up in a way. And like, I don't want to add another stripe to the zebra of like, oh, I also have to remove alcohol. Like, oh my God, like one more thing. I mean, for me, like, I didn't even think I had a problem. That was the biggest thing. Like, I don't know how naive I was or what, because (laughs) clearly everything I was doing was pointing to being a very serious problem. But like you said, my thing, what I, what had controlled my life for the majority of the time, like like I said, from seven till late into my 20s, was my eating disorder. That was what I knew was killing me. And that was my sole focus. And, you know, if people were telling me I had to do this too, I'm like, no. I'm like, because that's not as severe as this. That's not, that's not even the problem. Like, that's not even what I'm here for. So, like, just shut up because you don't know what it, what you're talking about. I don't have a problem and I'm just going to focus on my eating disorder, which I really wasn't even doing. Like I was just holding on to, I was holding on for dear life to these toxic things that were all that I knew because my ability to cope with 
life and trauma was so skewed. And these are the things that I was doing to cope with it for so long that I was scared to death to let go of any of them because I felt that, well, certainly my life would implode if I didn't have these things to quote unquote, get me through life. Yeah, I was just reading this passage on this book called Seed of the Soul that Paul, who started this podcast, recommended to me. And there's a chapter on addiction and it says, the source of every addiction is always control. And I know you didn't consider like, you didn't think at the time when it was happening that there was a real issue with alcohol. But I do feel like with your life and everything starting so young, it's like, are shitty coping skills as shitty as they are are also surviving skills according to our brain and to our own experience like if that's the only experience you've had then we always say it works until it doesn't like you were just holding on to whatever had saved you in the past and you when we don't know what's on the other side it's like no way i'm gonna let go like no freaking way exactly and the thing is like I th- and I and I I would assume that you had gone through the same thing. Like you recognized like when it wasn't working, but there's still a part of. I mean, for me, there was still a part of me that that needed to hold on to it. It's like this crutch that it was like a broken crutch. It's like if I have a broken leg and I'm using this broken crutch that's like not doing anything for me, but I guess the illusion of it being something that could help me is like what stayed in my brain, you know. And because I, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't. I wasn't dumb and I wasn't like, I guess, delusional. I knew that my eating disorder was killing me. But in the same sense, like you said, it's all that we knew. It's the only thing we had to get us through the times that we had experienced up until that point. And although I had these incredible people telling me there's so much more for you, like there's so many better days ahead if you just surrender, which I hated that word. I literally (laughs) despised. How many times a day did we hear that word? And for the longest time, I was like, what does that mean? Like, what are you saying to me? You know, that they were telling us this day and day, day in and day out. And I'm like, okay, like, all right. And I never, I just could not buy into it. But it was like, you know, the biggest thing that these incredible people at, you know, our treatment center were telling us, I mean, at least for me, they were like, you have to give up both. You have to be sober from everything and in a program of recovery throughout with every single thing in your life in order to actually reap the benefits of recovery. And, you know, I didn't, as I said, I did not believe them in any way. But sure as shit, when I got sober, every single piece of my life came together. It was like, I I remember, like, I still think about it. And I, like, shake my head at myself and I laugh. And I'm like, I just can't believe after all of this crap, like, the things that they were saying to me eight years ago, like, if I would have just listened... I would I would have been much better off because it was so true. And I think the drinking especially had the biggest, biggest impact on my thinking, on my awareness, you know, just just my thought process in general. It was so like I just say flooded by vodka. Like it just I, I couldn't think at all. I thought I was thinking. I thought I was functioning. I was considered a very, very high functioning alcoholic because I never missed a day of work. I never was drunk on the job like Luckily, I had I was able to function that way. But when I got sober and my thinking cleared up, I was like, holy shit, I can't believe I was so like flooded with the inability to think for so long. You were used to it the way that you were used to it back in 2012. Like, it's crazy. Same back to the same point, the resilience of our of our bodies. And I mean, 
I, I hear you. I totally hear you. And tell me about these first couple months. I know you shared that at the beginning, it was hard. And I'm glad you're touching on that. Because sometimes everyone's journey is different. But for a lot of people, it does get very hard at the beginning before it gets better because our body is trying to regulate once again. So what did you do in those first few months when the cravings hit? So for me, you know, I was in a program. I was in AA and I, when I had the big event in June of 2015, right after that, I had gone, I went back to AA. And that was because when I was living in California, when I was in treatment, that's what they conditioned me to do when like I wanted to drink or when things happened surrounding alcohol, like that's where you went. So like, it was like a gut instinct that just like drew me right back there. And so I'd never been to anything where around where I live. So it was very new um, for me. And, you know, starting in June, even before I got sober, I was going to these meetings to listen to these like-minded individuals and to see if like anything that they said would resonate with me or maybe change the way I felt or whatever. So I've been going to meetings for a month before I got sober. And as I said, I reached that emotional bottom that I just didn't want to live that way anymore. Um, I continued going to meetings. In the first three months, especially the first couple of weeks, like I had I had really severe um, withdrawal symptoms, like very, very severe, that I think the, the greatest thing, especially with that, and even with cravings over the next couple of months, is that I talked about it. So I had a sponsor. I, I made friends in the program, um, wonderful women that had been where I, I currently was at that point, and I was just open about it. The biggest thing for me was I had nothing left to hide at that point. I knew it wasn't serving me in any way. And I just talked about it. I was super honest when I shared in meetings, when I talked to people, whatever, and let them know exactly how I was feeling. Um, that like I really wanted to drink. I would tell people that I, you know, want to go to the store and get something that there was alcohol in my house, whatever. And, you know, with those cravings, like they can be overwhelming, like overpowering in a way. And for me, what I did was not only talk about it, not only be honest about it, but I really reflected back on what it was that got me to the point that I wanted to quit drinking in the first place. I replayed that last night and then, you know, the events leading up to it over and over and over in my head, because I knew that had I picked up another drink in that, in those moments where I really wanted to, it would just lead me right back to where I was. You know, they say like when you're, you're, in a meeting that your disease is doing push-ups in the parking lot like that's exactly what I imagined like it was just waiting and brewing and just like it's just silently there waiting for me to just have a moment of I don't know if you want to call it weakness or just whatever where I give in to the cravings and thank god you know I had the support system around me that I did my family even more so my siblings my sisters my brothers and because they were so supportive. And, and that was, I think, what made the biggest difference for me in my life period, in any of my recovery, is just having those individuals that like were unwavering in their support for me. I mean, regardless of what I did, regardless of how many times I messed up and pushed them away and said things and did things that really don't deserve, you know, people's attention or love, like they never left ever. And I would say like what really, as I said, what really propelled me through those first initial months of cravings and withdrawal symptoms is staying connected for sure. 
that community is crucial. So I'm not, I mean, I know you have such a strong support system, but I think that when we recover, and this is a sensitive topic for a lot of people, the ability to receive love is something that we actually also don't know. A lot of us, I'm not speaking for everyone, but we, yeah. it's hard. It's hard to be loved that way, like actually loved and cared for. Like in a lot of the times we get defensive at those attempts, but you've always had people in your corner. And I, I love knowing that you have a strong family, that you found a strong community through AA. And yeah, talking about it totally helps. Can, can you tell mm -hmm. me if your anxiety got better since you quit drinking? Oh my God. Like, like you wouldn't even believe, but like, I don't know, you know me, like that's pretty significant for me to say that my anxiety got better because <laughs> just for all, I'm a naturally anxious person, person, I like to be 10 steps ahead and, you know, knowing what's happening in the future, even though that's literally impossible. And since I quit drinking, like I've gotten off any medication I've needed to take for anxiety, you know, my impulses and just thought processes and the way I feel, you know, physically internally where anxiety once sat has like changed enormously. I do have moments where I feel anxious. That's normal. That's every, you know, that's life but it's not a constant state of anxiety like it used to be. Oh my God, that was, that's huge. Yes, it's, it's very correlated. And I, I think it's not talked about enough. There's this little social media tile going around that says that drinking is like pouring gasoline on anxiety. And I'm like, when I saw it for the first time, I was like, yes, <laughs> like it that's does. It's not going to go so away. True. It's not going to go away. Like you said, if you naturally have it, like I naturally have depression and it's not like it's gone away, but I'm not adding this extra layer of gunk on top of it. And it's right. just not your baseline the way that it used to be. I mean, your body was just trying to level out from those late night um, drinks. So huh. I'm so glad you don't have to deal because anxiety and the body feels awful. Like I'm it's glad you bitch. don't have to deal with it Sorry. anymore like that. It it's is a total bitch. And, and it, it is. And what I was going to say too, is like in dealing with, cause you know, I, I just have historic depression as well, anxiety. And I think the biggest thing is like for you and I, and I, I'm, I, I hope that you would experience the same thing is like, I can process it now. Like where before I was just adding alcohol to mask it or or get rid of it like I now have the ability to think clearly about it and like actually utilize healthy coping skills in order to deal with it rather than to just stuff it down which in turn just perpetuates it right it's a cycle it's a total cycle Absolutely. can you talk to me Desi about sharing openly because I know you said you share in your meetings and I know just how open you are has it has it felt powerful and like a tool to share about this on your social media? Because I know how open you are, even about your heart surgery. You're just like an open yeah. book. How has that helped you? You know, honestly, like I told myself and, and Odette, you, you know, our friend Christina who passed away. Yes. I, you know, for me, a lot of it stems from you know, our friend Christina, a little background, she passed away from a uh, heroin overdose. She was in treatment with us as well. Um, and she had a co-occurring issue too. And, you know, devastatingly, she passed away while Odette and I were in treatment with her. And, you know, she was one of my best friends. And it really was that situation. Because before that, I wasn't really open about my struggles, my journey, because I was afraid that people would judge me or think, just think things about me. And, 
you know, we all want to be accepted and validated, whatever. But after that situation, I told myself, I said, you know what, if I am able to get to a place in my life where I'm doing well and I'm living a life of recovery, I have a duty to be open about it, to help other people because Christina did not get that chance. And I've lost another another friend who was in treatment with me, not while you were there, Odette, over the last couple of years from her eating disorder as well. And, you know, it's for these people who, these genuine, incredible people who passed away because of their illnesses, like that didn't get the chance to talk about it. I feel like because I am here and because I have overcome and survived so much that it would be a disservice to their memory and their honor if I didn't open up about it. Because my goal is just to help other people. Like, that's why I'm becoming a social worker. That's why I, you know, I want to, I'm actually going to work with athletes who have eating disorders because that's my biggest passion. But I am open about it because I have a voice, because I am still here, because I've lived through so many things. And, you know, with our illnesses, it's such a silent struggle and there's so much shame and judgment attached to it you know whether it be from society or the media or friends or whatever and for me I'm like you know what this is my life and I have so many people in my life that support me no matter what and appreciate like my vulnerability and my honesty that it it would be even more so now it's turned into being like a disservice to myself if Mm -hmm. I weren't open about it because my hope is just that if I reach one person um, with my experience, that's like, wow, they're going, they went through what I'm going through or like that they can relate in some type of way, or if they know someone that's struggling or whatever, like that, that's my goal. I, I just, I'm open about my struggles because I have nothing to hide. I have nothing to be ashamed of because I'm, you know, and it's, it's still hard for me to say, but like, I'm proud of the person that I am today. It took me, it took me, I can't even tell you how much time to even get to a point where I thought, in a positive way about myself. And it's still, it's still hard. I mean, even to verbalize it, but you know, the things that I've overcome have made me who I am and have allowed me to help other people. And I'm telling you with being open about it on social media, there have been so many people that have reached out to me with their struggles or with questions or needing help. And it's like, God, if only like it was more widely accepted or talked about, like it wouldn't be so difficult for people to get the help that they need. You are being part of the solution, though, Desi, and just it's not just one person you're helping. I know that's the intent, but you're helping so many. And I know you're going to reach so many more people with inter- with this interview. And then you're finishing up your master's. I am just so happy that you are on this path. And I'm so happy that you were brave enough to finally let go of everything that was holding you back, because I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but you just keep surprising yourself, which is a cool such a cool journey and like self-discovery like what the heck just happened like I just got this opportunity or I just did that and like that's so cool you're just becoming becoming your own friend and kind of coming back to yourself so keep it up and we've reached the rapid fire round if you can answer these questions in 30 seconds or less that would be fabuloso are you ready okay deep breath yes I'm ready here we go okay perfect if you could talk to Desi on day one Day one of whenever, what would you say to her? Just hold on, have hope, and let people help you, and listen. Just listen to other people. That's what I would say. What are you excited about right now? I just got an internship with um, the University of Michigan Athletics, where I'm going to be um, working with their their athletes 
in mental health and counseling, specifically those with eating disorders. So I could not be more thrilled about that starting. What's your go-to response when someone offers you a drink? <laughs> what do I say? Can I, they say, can I get you something to drink? And I, no, I'm, I'm good with water. I'm, I'm good. <laughs> I mean, it's like, I'm good. And if anyone presses it, I just say, nah, just don't feel, just don't feel like drinking. There's occasionally where I tell people that I'm sober um, if I'm like more comfortable with it. But mostly it's just like, I'm good. <laughs> Usually that's all you need to say. Some people are so right. nervous about that question and right. people don't really care. <laughs> oh, no, not at all. It, people make it out to be bigger than it is. If you just say, no, I'm good, then that's usually like they won't push it. What parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are thinking about ditching the booze? Oh, man, that's a good one. If you can think of like best case scenario for your life, just know that without alcohol, it is 100% possible. And I never, I never thought that. I always had this image of like what my life could look like. And once I stopped drinking, it was even better than I ever imagined. And the biggest thing I said was the awareness piece. I never believed that I was a person who was unaware. But once I stopped drinking, my brain cleared up so much that my level of thinking and awareness was, was probably the biggest gift that I've gotten out of all of this. And before we depart, can you give listeners your own, you may have to say adios to booze if line. <laughs> uh, you may have to say adios to booze if you sneak out, get drunk, come back home, fall down the stairs, and break your leg running to the toilet to throw up that's when you you would probably just adios to booze <laughs> oh that that happened in a place we both were if that makes sense to you <laughs> all right we will leave that place anonymous for all a <laughs> uh, very shining moment i'll tell you that <laughs> desi thank you so much for joining us on the podcast i appreciate you i love you take care and i'll talk to you soon means everything. Thank you so much. Thank you for sharing. Very well, team. That's a wrap. And before I say adios, I want to say thank you. I've been really enjoying connecting with all of you listeners via email and Instagram. You seriously make my day when you reach out. I am here with you every day, step by step. When we link our energies, great things can happen. I'm super grateful that I get to be the voice behind the RE mic for now, and my hope is to continue to share strength through these powerful stories. Remember that you're not alone, and together is always better. Recovery elevator? We took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this. I love you guys.